Acts, the 15th chapter, starting at verse number 1. It says, And a certain man came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So they sent on their way to the church, and they passed by Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversation of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider the matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by the mouth the Gentile, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made by no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God tonight. I pray that you speak to our hearts, give us understanding, and give us ears to hear everything that you have for us. And Lord, we give you praise for it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, last week, as we mentioned, Miranda covered them at Iconium and how the disciples with great boldness had to stand up against the culture of the day. And I love one of the verses in the middle of that chapter. He told them to put away their dumb idols and to serve the living God. Now, I'm going to tell you, that type of preaching right there is not popular today. It doesn't sell books, it doesn't sell tapes, it doesn't make you the number one on TBN, but that's how the apostles preached. They came in with the boldness of the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't know about you, I just happen to believe that when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and baptizes them in fire, it gives them boldness. And uh, these disciples, that's why we call this fire starters, because the, everywhere they went, they were placing a spark, and an ignition would happen and cause a great, great, great revival. And they would either uh, start a church, start a revival, or they would get run out of town. Amen. They would get run out of town. To the point many of them stoned, and God uh, raised them back up, and they go back into the same place and preach the very same places that they had been stoned. But what we see is that the apostles came and with great boldness proclaimed the Word of God. Signs and wonders happened, miracles, people were saved, people were delivered, people were set free. And now that brings us up into chapter number 15, and I've entitled this teaching tonight, There's Only One Way. Can you say that with me? There's only one way. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the fact that Jesus is the only way to salvation. He is the only way. Uh, you know, there is some dispute in the world on the exclusivity of salvation. Is Jesus really 
the only way to heaven. So many people teach that, you know, well, you know, Allah is the same God as Jehovah. A lot of people teach that. A lot of people think that there's only one God, but really there's just a bunch of different names or different paths to God. But rather than to believe any of that, we have to look at what the Scripture says. And the Scripture teaches us that while this gospel message is open to everybody, in other words, it is is a non-discriminatory gospel. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, what color you are, what side of the tracks that you grew up in, how many degrees you have, don't have, GED, college dropout, it doesn't matter. But what the Bible does tell us is that while the gospel is open to everybody, Jesus was very plain when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. That's what John 14, 6 tells us. But uh, uh, people today tend to think that all roads lead to Rome. In fact, there are some bumper stickers in which, you know, I didn't really even realize bumper stickers were still a thing. Amen. But they were a thing, you know, when I was growing up. Everybody had bumper stickers. And there's a bumper sticker that you can see it periodically on cars, especially if you go into a big city. And it, it says, coexist. And it'll have a picture of a of Christian fish, and there'll be a, a Muslim crescent moon there. There'll be a star of David. They'll have all of these other religious things. And what they're trying to say is, is that we all just need to coexist, intermingle, and get along. The problem with that is, is the gospel is counterculture. Jesus is adamant that he is the only way to heaven. And the Bible even teaches us in the Old Covenant through the Ten Commandments that um, you, thou shalt have no other God before me. For the Lord your God is a what? Jealous God. God's jealous over us. So what we see is that in society today, so many people have these questions on what, what, how do we get saved? Is there more than one way to be saved? And then even there are some who believe in Jesus who have their own other little things that they add to salvation. Now, can I go through some of these with you? Amen? Now listen, I don't want to offend you tonight. That is not my intention, my purpose, or anything. But I believe in plain speech. I believe that if I shroud everything in a mystery, you walk out of here, it goes over your head. You don't understand what I'm talking about. So I'm going to mention some things tonight. And I want you to understand that a lot of these things, to me, are not heaven or hell issues. But there are people who have different ideas of what brings us to salvation. Amen? Can I give you a few of those? Can I give you a few of them? I'm going to give them to you anyway. All right. Don't be offended, okay? Everybody say this with me. Say, Pastor, we're not going to be offended with you. All right. Thank you. If If you have a Catholic background or you have family who are Catholic, Catholics believe that taking Mass, or that is their version of communion, the Eucharist, is right there with salvation. No mass, no communion, no Eucharist. It is connected in that very aspect. It is a very works-based salvation. Okay? Here's another one. There are some groups of people that believe that if you're not baptized in water, you can't be saved. 
Okay? There are people who believe that sincerely. They believe that if you've not been baptized in water, then there is no salvation. You say, Pastor, where do they get that from? There's a verse in Peter that says, likewise, baptize, baptism does also save us, not by washing away of our sin, but giving us a clear conscience towards God. It's a, just a mis, uh, kind of a misinterpretation because the Scripture teaches us that baptism is important. The Bible teaches us that we should be baptized. In fact, if you've gotten saved and given your life to Christ, baptism's really not even anything for you to pray about. It's a command in Scripture. Jesus tells us to be baptized. But all of the scriptural instances deal with people being baptized after they have already repented and called upon the name of the Lord. So, it is a step after baptism, not before baptism. There are a group of Pentecostals. I pastored in central Louisiana for five years and um, went down there in the town that we lived in. It was a stronghold region, if you want to call it that, for the what is called oneness Pentecostalism or United Pentecostals. You might know those, and I'm not knocking them if you know people who, I have friends who are in that movement. They're the long hair, long dress, no makeup, no jewelry. They're baptized only in Jesus' name, so that's the only way that's valid, right? And then they go as far as to say this, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Well, that's also not true. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe the initial physical evidence of that experience, according to Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, inferred in Acts 8, Mark 16, Jesus talked about it. I believe, according to the Scripture, that a, a, a initial physical evidence of spirit baptism is tongues. It's over. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with tongues. Acts chapter 10, while Peter spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell on them who heard. And they began to speak with tongues. Acts 19, Paul finds disciples passing through the coast of Ephesus. He asked them where they had been baptized. He lays hands on them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with tongues. But what we have to see is all of those instances happened after those people were saved. Amen. After they were saved. So what am I trying to say? There are even modern day versions of Christianity who've attached things to salvation. So it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus plus something. But I want you to know tonight that salvation is found in no other except Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle wrote to the church at Ephesus, he said, For you are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. If you're saved by baptism, that's a work. If you're saved by communion, that's a work. If you're saved by spirit infilling, that's a work. If you're saved by giving to the poor, that's a work. How many of you know you should do all of those things? But we do those things because we are saved, not because we try, we're trying to be saved. Amen. It's a difference between uh, having fruit in your life as a Christian versus trying to, uh, to uh, 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 grab a hold of the approval of God. So tonight, I want you to look at this because this is exactly where we find ourselves in the early church. It's, it's, it's interesting. 
that Jesus birthed the church on the day of Pentecost by the power of the Holy Spirit. People are being saved by the thousands. I mean, literally, on, in Acts chapter 2 and 3, thousands of people are saved. They have to get deacons to help with the widows, and they're planting churches, and they're here, and they're there, and they're everywhere, and Paul's off on missionary journeys, and, and all of these things. But yet, there's still some baggage that people are having to unpack as they're learning to follow this newfound faith in Christ. How many of you know sometimes you have to unlearn some things? How many of you have ever unlearned some things in your life? Okay, I've had to unlearn some things. I've had to unlearn some things that I've been taught in church my whole life by well-meaning people that, that told me traditions of men as if they were gospel truth. And I bought it hook, line, and sinker. The first time I ever preached in a church without a three-piece suit and cufflinks on, I thought the roof was going to catch on fire and lightning bolts were going to strike me dead until I found out that the Bible says you're not to wear clothes you boast in. That's what the Pharisees did. Come on, somebody. Well, that went over like a screen door on a submarine, but let's go a little further. People say, well, you would, you would, you would dress like that if you went and saw a president. Yeah, but I wouldn't if I went and saw my father. I'd put my feet up on his desk and open the refrigerator, and he'd say, sit down, son, let's talk. Hallelujah. All right, let's go a little further. So, what we're going to find is that these disciples are preaching and reaching new converts, Gentiles. These are people who've come out of pagan religions. These are people who've come out of backgrounds that are opposite of Judaism. And now there's a great revival among people of all, all tribe, kindred, and tongue. And now what we find is that there is a dissension that is rising among these believers on what these new converts have to do to be saved. In other words, what some of these people were saying is they don't look like us, they don't smell like us, they don't talk like us because we're Jews, we're exclusive. You know, Peter dealt with this a few chapters back, didn't he? Because he didn't even want to preach to these people and God had to help him out. But they're saying you don't look like us, talk like us, smell like us us. They need to go through the same rituals and customs that we have, just like Moses said. And so they asked, should they become like a Jew and be circumcised to follow Christ? Should they come through Moses just like we did? And so these questions begin to cause some dissension among the early church. And so what happened was, was Peter or, or Paul and Barnabas and Peter and some of the others, they said, let's do this. We're going to have a meeting. And so they had a church business meeting. That's exactly what it was. They all got together to discuss doctrine. And you got to understand, they weren't discussing carpet. They weren't discussing what kind of chandeliers they were going to have. That, that's not what they did in their church business meetings. They were discussing doctrine. They were discussing polity. They were discussing spiritual things of that nature. And so what happened was, was they came together and they asked the question. The first thing I want you to write down, if you're taking notes tonight, is this. Number one, it's the question. What question was it? The question of all questions that they asked is, how is somebody saved? How many of you know that's a pretty good question? How is somebody saved? How is somebody saved? You know, I'm telling you, if we don't understand this question, we don't understand the simplicity of the gospel. 
You can't witness to anybody or anything if you don't know this question. How is someone saved? Many of them came down from Antioch, and here's what they said. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas, the Bible said they had no small disagreement. In other words, it inflamed them. It infuriated them like it should have been. So they decided to go to a council meeting with other leaders and to talk about this very thing. Folks, let me tell you something. This is so relevant to, uh, for us today because when we're dealing with lost people, when we're dealing with new converts, when we're dealing with people who have spiritual questions, we have to have biblical answers. And they wanted to know, what do these people need to do to be saved? What do they need to do to be saved? And I believe that as we look at this, and as we begin to go forward in the Scripture, He begins to outline to us an answer. And so tonight, I want you to look at this with me, if you don't mind. I want to look at a couple of things, and um, go back with me in Acts chapter 15, and let's look at this together. Um, Look at verse 5. It says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. So, in other words, these are some Pharisees who the Bible says believed. In other words, what that infers is that they believed on Christ. Jesus even got, and the apostles even got some Pharisees saved. And here's what they said. They said, now uh, it says that, uh, is it necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, I'm going to say something real deep here, real heavy. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were the religious crowd. They were the law keepers, the rule keepers. Can I tell you, when you get religious people saved, sometimes you still got to work the kinks out of them. You do, because they hold on to some of that tradition. And they said, okay, so we got to make these people just like us. So let's just circumcise their flesh and command them to keep the law of Moses. And what does he say when you go on further than that? It says, now the apostles came together to consider this matter. And when they had that much dispute, Peter said, let's go talk about it among our brethren. Let's look at the conversation tonight. We see the question. Let's go right into the conversation. This is extremely important. Many were suggesting that they become a Jew first before coming to Christ. That would involve male circumcision and following the law of Moses. Now, this completely inflamed the apostles because it went against everything that they had been teaching up until this point. Because here's what the apostles were teaching. And here's what Jesus taught. Jesus said, he said, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. Now, let me wade out here into some deep water tonight because one of the greatest controversies in the church today is this grace issue, right? You hear the buzzword in the church today is grace, grace, grace. Now, years ago, it was faith, faith, faith. And what happens is, is any time that we overemphasize one truth over another, we always tend to get out of balance. Always. If you, if you um, accentuate heaven over hell, hell over heaven, if you uh, truth over mercy, any, any one truth that you emphasize over another always leads us out of balance. Here's what Romans said. Behold both the goodness and the severity of God. God is both good and he's also judge. Amen. Amen. 
There's not anything we can do to ever change that fact. It's important. But, but here's the thing. When we're looking at this, the big thing about grace, people are they're teaching grace. And it's, it's even crazy. People are saying this on TV today. They really are. You can find their books and all this stuff. They're saying you don't need to repent anymore. Because Jesus already paid for your past, your present, and your future sins, the one you've already not even committed yet. So he already knows you're going to commit them, so there's not even a reason for you to repent. There's one Greek word for that, baloney. If that was the case, 1 John would not have said, if you, if, you, if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That was written to believers post-resurrection. So, I want you to see that, that a lot of people are saying this, this grace, grace, and the buzzword that goes along, the buzz phrase that goes along with the grace, hyper-grace message is, we're not under the law. Have you ever heard that? We're not under the law. Well, hold on just a second there, bucko, because that's only a half-truth. That's only a half-truth. When the Scripture talks about Christ has fulfilled the law, when the Bible talks about that we're not under the law, the law was a schoolmaster, all of those things, we've got to understand that you are absolutely correct when you say that we're not under the law of Moses. But the question is, what was the law of Moses? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Now, most people think that this talking about the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments was not the law of Moses. The Ten Commandments was the law of God. It was the moral law, right? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt have no other God before me, honor your father and mother, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, thou shalt not murder. Uh, you know, all those ten laws that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai uh, with the finger of God writing upon tablets of stone, that is the moral law. I want you to know something tonight. God did not do away with that. You can find every single one of those in the New Testament. But Jesus just boiled them down and he said, listen, instead of trying to remember 10, just remember 2. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you evaluate all 10 commandments among those two things that Jesus told us, all of that is contained. But let's just deal with this while I have your attention for a moment on this we're not under the law stuff. Well, yeah, you're right. We're not under the law. We are under grace. But grace is a much higher standard than the law. Always. You know how, how I know? In the Old Testament, if you were an adulterer and you were caught, you could be stoned. That was the law. That's why they came and threw the woman down in adultery at the feet of Jesus and say, the law of Moses says this, what do you say? That was the law. Everybody say the law. But Jesus took grace a step further and he said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, if you look with lust, you've already done it in your heart. You have heard it said, the law said, do not murder. But I said... If you look at your brother with hatred in your heart, 
you've already been guilty of murder. So grace is a higher standard. It's not a lesser standard. The curse of the law is that we didn't have the power to fulfill it. But Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, helps us to walk in the newness of life. It's a blessing. Amen. Christ fulfilled the law. So what was it then that the Bible says we're not under the law anymore? You ready for this? This will set some of you free. It wasn't the moral law. It was the 613 ceremonial laws that were added later by Moses and the rabbis and the Jews over and over and over again, that the law had become so stretched and so rigid that nobody could even keep it. And part of that 613 ceremonial law were things about circumcision, things about, uh, see, the Jesus, or the, the Scripture just says, uh, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But the Jews expanded in that, in that ceremonial law in those 613 laws. And so just honoring the Sabbath wasn't good enough for them. Now it was, you can't take more than 10 steps on the Sabbath day or that's considered work. You can't light a fire on a Sabbath day because that's considered work. It, it just went further and further. It was a yoke that nobody could bear. And so these Jews, who, these Pharisees who had just gotten saved are coming to the apostles and they're saying, you know what? They need to be yoked back up under this old law. You need to circumcise them so that they become like a Jew and they need to follow the Torah and follow all of these things so that they can be like we were. The problem was it wasn't good enough to save them and it wasn't good enough to save these new people. The law was simply established to show us that we could not do it in and of ourselves, but that it was Jesus Christ on the cross fulfilling every sin, every transgression, every iniquity. He hung there in our place with our penalty, with the wrath of God upon him. And it is by faith in what he has done that produces salvation in the hearts of mankind. And these apostles stood up and said, how dare you? Try to add something to the faith and grace of God. Whew, I get fired up when I get talking about this. Because the gospel is not what can I do, it's what he did. Amen. I'm telling you, we are saved by grace through faith. That doesn't mean we don't have to live holy. That doesn't mean we have to not abstain from sin. It means all of that. But listen, the, the whole point of the matter is I can only be saved if I throw myself upon the mercies of a holy God. It's the only way it can happen. So Peter spoke up and he said, God gave these Gentiles the right to eternal life. And he proved it to us by giving them the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you just missed that. When Peter preached at Cornelius' house, what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on those people. And they, they did. They spoke with tongues. They prophesied. And they were converted. You know how do I know that? Because you can't have the Holy Spirit if you're not saved. Amen. The Holy Spirit doesn't indwell the unclean vessel. He only comes into the hearts and lives of people who believe the gospel. And so what Peter was trying to tell them is, these people are already saved. 
They've already received the Holy Spirit. And now you want them to backtrack and keep your laws and keep your traditions and to, to keep your customs? He said, no, absolutely not. But he did tell them there were a couple things they needed to do. The third thing, I want to look at the conclusion. They concluded that these believers were, fa- were saved by faith in Christ and nothing else. Let me say my title one more time tonight. There's only one way. There's only one way. They were not to add burdens to these new believers who they themselves had struggled to carry. But they were simply instructed culturally to follow two things, or three things, a couple things rather, three things. They were told to abstain from meat that was sacrificed to idols. These Gentiles were told that because they lived in a, in a culture where idolatry was rampant. People were sacrificing bulls and goats and animals to their gods. And people would go and they would sell them in the market. And Paul deals with this later in the book of Romans when he deals with conscience. And he says, um, you know, everything is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. But if you eating something that has been sacrificed to idols, if, if it offends one of your brethren, he says, don't do it. Because Christian liberty is not above the uh, sacrificing ourselves for the well-being of our neighbor. So people ask me all the time, well, can I do this? Can I do that as a Christian? Can I watch this? Can I do that? Can I go here? Can I drink that? All of this stuff. The question is not always necessarily can you. The question is, is it beneficial to the cause of Christ and your testimony? So he, they told them, they said in this meeting, they said, abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols. They said, and, and, uh, and blood offered to idols. And then he tells them, don't fornicate. Don't fornicate. Because just like in our day today, sexual sin was just as prominent in those days as it is today. You say, Pastor, I, I don't know if it's as bad I don't know if it's as bad back then as it is today. Well, I would argue the fact with you. I would just say it's more prominently known today. Because we have the internet, we have CNN, Fox, NBC, ABC, any news network that you want to find. And information can be dispersed at the tip of a fingertip. But let me tell you, um, outside of one of the cities in Rome, Pompeii, in, in Italy, rather, one of the cities in Italy, Pompeii was the most wicked place as far as sexually goes in the days of even the Scripture. Paul talks about Pompeii, and Scripture talks about that area a little bit. People went in there and, and ministered and whatnot. But Mount Vesuvius erupted shortly after the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and that, that volcano erupted in, Mount Vesuvius erupted in Pompeii, and the ash came down upon people and froze them in their places forever. And when they excavated Pompeii, they found some of the most graphic, explicit, pornographic things, not just between male, female, but male, 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 female, male, child, anything you could possibly think of. It was a deplorable place. 
In the days of the apostles in Ephesus, there was temple prostitution. There were gods that you could go and worship, like Diana, who was a fertility goddess. And, and in order to give her an offering, you had to offer her sexual things. And, and there were temple prostitutes. And so the apostles, among these early believers who had come out of some of these various movements and religions, were told not to follow the ways of the world. So for the sake of conscience. We want you to avoid food that's been sacrificed to idols and the blood, and don't fornicate. Amen. How many of that's pretty good advice? How many know some Christians today need to hear that advice? Don't fornicate. What is fornicate? Fornicate is having sexual relations with somebody outside of the bonds of marriage. Amen. So, What's the conclusion? The conclusion is one must not become like a Jew to be saved. Christ has fulfilled the law. We still hold the moral law. We're still supposed to not covet. We're still supposed to honor our father and mother. We're still supposed to not bear false witness. That's lying. We're still not supposed to um, dishonor the Sabbath day, which for us is the Lord's day. And um, we're also, um, you know, not supposed to bear false witness against our neighbor uh, or covet our neighbor's property or wife or dog or car or whatever it might be. We're still not supposed to put any other God before him because he's still a jealous God. We're still not supposed to murder Doesn't matter if they call it abortion or not. We're still not supposed to murder. That's in the New Testament. We're not supposed to to take innocent life. All of those things are still valid. But it was the weighty Jewish ceremonial law that Christ fulfilled. All of those ordinances of not being able to keep one of those. I'm closing with this thought, but can you imagine being a Jewish young man or Jewish young woman and having to remember to keep every single one of those laws. When we were in Israel several years ago on our Holy Land tour, Shabbat, which is the Sabbath day, interesting. We were in Tel Aviv. We were at a, um, a restaurant, a hotel that had a restaurant in it. And for the Jews, the you, you probably know this, but for the Jews, the Sabbath starts Friday at sundown and ends Saturday at sundown. They do not work in that 24 hours. If it is a real deal Jewish place, if it's a restaurant, you may be able to go there and eat food, but it's all prepared the day before. A lot of it's cold cuts, pastries, cereals, milk, that type of thing. You're not going in there and getting an omelet cooked or a steak or anything like that because that is totally against Jewish culture because that means somebody has to cook it. And let me tell y'all something, ladies. You might like this. Those of you who are more of the homemaker type, I know men, we live in a culture, men do some of that stuff too, but some of you ladies who are a homemaker type stuff, also on the Sabbath day, all the dishes and all the plates stay on the table to the next day. It's a day off. But beyond that, one of the things that was the most interesting to me was getting on the elevator to go up to our room. And I realized that when I walked into the elevator, all of the buttons were already pushed in. 
So, you know, you normally go in and you hit press one, press two, press third floor, sixth floor, whatever. They were all pressed. And it stopped at every floor, opened, went to the second floor, opened, third floor, opened. And it did this for 24 hours with all of the buttons pushed in. And I asked one of them, why is it that you do that? And they told me, they said, because the law of Moses says you are not to light a fire on the Sabbath day. And when you push a button in on any electronic device, you can't see it with your eye, but it lights a spark. And that's a disobedient uh, uh, move to the law of Moses. Now, can you imagine if your false teeth, even, even in the law, in those 613 laws, if your false teeth fell out on the Sabbath day, you weren't able to, to lean down and pick them up and put them back in. Because it was considered work. Serious. They told us this. So can you imagine when Jesus was talking about if you break the law in any part, you're guilty of all of it. Jesus was talking about keeping that ceremonial code because Christ has fulfilled all of that law. And now by the Holy Spirit, he's written his law upon our hearts. That's why when we're saved and the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us, he convicts us of things. He convicts us when we're wrong. He convicts us when we don't put the Lord first. He convicts us when we covet or when we, he should convict us anyway, but he convicts us of those things. And we still walk in the moral aspect of what God calls us to do. But the point I want to drive home tonight is this. You can close your Bible. We're done. Is that the disciples argued this point. Salvation is by faith alone. It's by faith alone. In fact, Paul went over to the church at Galatia and he wrote about this. He says, he says, you then, do you think what you've started in the spirit, you'll fulfill it by going back into the flesh? And Paul deals with this later in Hebrews and other places when he's dealing with this Jewish culture. He says, you don't have to be a Jew to be saved. He said, if you're a Jew, then you can remain a Jew. If you are a Gentile, then you can remain that way. And what Paul was saying is, if you're a Jew and you still wanted to practice the Jewish customs, that's okay. As a Jew, that is a Messianic Jew, they may still celebrate the Feast of Passover. But as a Jewish believer, now they're celebrating it, realizing that Christ fulfilled that. All the other ceremonies and laws... They may observe some of those things, but they do it realizing that Christ observed it. But Jesus was very, very careful, and the apostles were very, very careful to tell us all throughout the New Testament and the epistles that we are not saved by going back under the law of Moses. We are only saved by the faith that comes through Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad tonight that you're saved by faith? Come on, if you're glad you're saved by faith, close your Bible and stand up with me tonight. And let's get ready to pray. But I'm so glad that I'm saved by faith. You know what that means? That means my faith is in what Jesus did. My faith is in what Jesus did. Let me tell you, if my faith was in what I did, it would be so shifty. I don't know anybody in this room who bats at 100 24-7. Everybody has a bad day. 
Everybody has a bad mood every now and then. Everybody has a negative thought every now and then. And if we were saved based on what we can do, we'd all be in bad shape. The Scripture goes on to say it like this. Our righteousness is like a filthy rag. That's what the Bible says in Leviticus. And if you really want the literal interpretation of that, go look it up. He's not talking about a dish rag. Our righteousness is like a filthy rag. But our faith and our salvation is not based on our righteousness. It's based on Christ's righteousness. Bow your head, close your eyes. I close with this verse. Paul wrote to the church of Galatians. He says, he that knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus died on that cross, there was an exchange that happened. We were sinful. He was righteous. He never sinned, but we did. But when he hung on that cross and God's wrath came upon him, the weight and the penalty of all of our sin, he he received it as if he did it, but he never did do it. He stepped in as a substitute into our place. Here's what the Bible says. There was an exchange. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. Oh, my goodness. That's a good thing. That we're not saved based on our own abilities. But we're saved on the grace of God. Amen. Let's bow our head and let's close our eyes.